too much scrolling. I'm Steve. I'm Chip. And we have all the information you need to survive another week. New shows published every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. We'll see you in the future. Hello. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hi there. This is Richard Franklin, and I play Captain Mike Yates on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the invasive task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Yeah, I, I know, the whole adjective joke is getting quite stale by now. <laughs> My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a similarly invasive four-person discussion panel, take that as you will, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. And finally, we welcome a new special guest to the podcast, the writer of the insightful and hilarious Dark Shadows Every Day blog, Danny Horn. Hello, Danny. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Great. Before we get started with the rest of our spiel, let me just ask you about the Dark Shadows Every Day blog, how you started it, and how long you've been a fan of both Doctor Who and Dark Shadows. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Dark Shadows, for folks who don't know, it's a 1960s vampire soap opera that aired on ABC Daytime for five years. And at its peak in 1969, it was incredibly popular. And then it stopped in 1971 and nobody remembers it anymore. 
Dark Shadows started out as a fairly normal, gloomy daytime soap opera in 1966, and it was on the way to being canceled when they introduced a vampire into the cast. And the brilliant thing about Dark Shadows is that they kept a close eye on what their audience responded to. So if there's a character that people really liked, then they would focus on that more, as you always should with serialized narrative. Um, and so the show became super popular because of the vampire, so they started adding like more ghosts and monsters, and soon there were like witches and Frankenstein monsters and werewolves, but it was still like regular soap opera narratives they're all like falling in love with each other and traveling through time and doing ridiculous things and so dark shadows and doctor who are really similar like they both thrive on spectacle and surprise which is basically the whole point of television and so because dark shadows was this little laboratory for experimenting with what the audience responded to you can learn a lot from watching the show about how stories work and how television works so dark shadows every day I've been running it for seven years. Uh, It looks at every episode since the vampire's introduction to see what we can learn from it. Um, So far, I've written more than a thousand posts. And as of this recording in early 2021, I am almost finished, um, which I'm really (laughs) excited about. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a hell of a project. (laughs) (laughs) The other ties between Dark Shadows and Doctor Who, for those who have never watched Dark Shadows or are unfamiliar with it, though that would amaze me are that the series has continued via Big Finish Productions in the same way that Doctor Who has continued. In fact, Colin Baker, the sixth Doctor, Hmm. has appeared as a character in a few of the Dark Shadows audios, I believe. And yeah, there's a lot of cross-pollination, so I'm very glad to welcome Danny here. Let me go into the rest of the spiel, and then we'll get on to talking about why he's here for this book in particular. If you like what you're hearing, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them. Just like giving to PBS, except PBS doesn't tend to spend your money on alcohol. I don't know that. (laughs) Well, that's true. But not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those, you've built an entire fake British village to store them all. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air, and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Somnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our trek through Season 13, the second Tom Baker season, with our discussion of the Android Invasion. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Android Invasion, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Terry Nation that aired from 11-22-75 to 12-13-75, published by Target Books in November 1978. As of this recording in January of 2021, this title is currently out of print, 126 pages. Now, Danny... (laughs) When I invited you to come on the podcast, you specifically requested this one. did. Why did you do that thing that you did? I love the Android Invasion. <laughs> Android Invasion was one of the first Doctor Who stories that I saw. And I was, I guess, 11 years old. And I was just absolutely fascinated by the first two episodes. I totally understand that the last two episodes are a big letdown. But the first two episodes are like the spooky little puzzle where the doctor and Sarah go around and pick up little clues and try to figure out what's going on. Ultimately, 
it's a ridiculous puzzle that makes no sense at all. <laughs> but I have never forgotten the pleasure of like, why are all the coins new? And why does the calendar only have one page? And then Doctor Who knocks Sarah over and she falls and her face falls off. And it's just like <laughs> one of the most thrilling things that I've ever seen. And that kind of made me a Doctor Who fan in the first place. This book, unfortunately, is just part of the lamestream media because it's entirely biased <laughs> In, in favor of Doctor Who. So as a diehard crawl supporter, a lot a lot of people are saying, a lot of crawls are saying that the system is rigged. That's all I have to say. <laughs> well, I think you'd be right because <laughs> this, this story isn't well-beloved in the Doctor Who magazine poll of 2014. Fake, fake polls. <laughs> it's fake polls, y'all. It's yeah. like it's the great polling of 2014. Yeah. yeah. Well... 146 of 241 stories, so that's right around a D-plus if we're doing that sort of thing to it. You'll notice I didn't say there's an abridged audiobook, because there isn't one, which is generally a sign of how well-regarded this story is. Out of all of the stories in Season 13, this one appears not to be influenced by a classic horror movie, but it actually is. It doesn't have a lot in common with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it's that movie that Terry Nation was thinking of when he wrote the script. He was actually trying for something more original based on the then-novel fear that the Soviet Union was constructing replicas of Western towns as training facilities for sleeper agents. Let's talk about the lamestream media. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did that really act? Did that actually happen? I don't know. I, I know that go. it was reported at the time, and I know that it was a fear, but as far as actually getting any truth about it, well... Oh. <laughs> Yeah, as, as they used to say, you don't turn to Pravda for truth, mm. so. I'm entertained by the idea that they would set them up as training camps and also to sort of show decadence of the West, but they would make it too good a time, like people just, agents are clamoring to get into the program where they can <laughs> hang like, out in the village that's all bars <laughs> and bookshops and that sort like of thing. It's like Disneyland, yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. yeah. This, this England, Party town. England land. Yeah. Exactly. That's beautiful. Now, you'll notice that this script does have a lot of earmarks of former Terry Nation scripts, especially the Dalek Invasion of Earth, because that also features the Doctor and Companions wandering around for a whole episode, not knowing what the hell's going on. Unfortunately, in most of the reviews of this story, the word far-fetched gets flung around a lot. And this comes from people who review Doctor Who stories for a living, which is a bit rich, to be honest. <laughs> Terrence Sticks appears to be working from Nation's draft scripts, because his original idea of the crawl androids being mirror images is mentioned here. It's not a plot point mm. in the televised story. Grierson, who doesn't appear on screen until episode four, is in the book early on. And I, just watching it again the other night, I noticed he's credited for episode one. So he may have been in the script all the way up until a very late stage. And in addition to Dixon Nation, the story features another alumnus from the John Pertwee era. Barry Letts returned to direct this one, which is why it feels so much like a unit story, although they barely register here. Oh. It was meant to feature the Brigadier, but since Nick Courtney had much better things to do, <laughs> we get Faraday. It is, however, and this is very sad, the final appearance on screen of two characters, neither of whom gets an appropriate send-off. John Levine as Sergeant Benton and Ian Martyr as Harry Sullivan. 
Luckily, we ourselves are getting at least two more Harry stories, since he'd appear in two more original works, one written by Martyr himself, and one written by Tom Baker, the latter of which we will do next time. You think they'd have the decency to kill him off? You would think so. <laughs> you would think so. I know, right. right? Show him some mercy. He's so delightful. Exactly. One more bit of trivia. If you ever see the story on screen, you'll notice very easily that poor Tom Baker seems to have a horrible case of laryngitis. And it's it's worse than that, because it only happens in the scenes on location. He actually did submerge himself in water during the scene when the Doctor hides from the androids, but unlike the Doctor, he didn't use a reed as a breathing device, and he ended up swallowing so much brackish water that he had to be taken to the hospital to have his stomach pumped. Oh, goodness, that's horrible. Yeah. And weird. If you ever wondered what someone's voice sounds like after they've had their stomach pumped, well, that's what it sounds like. Did he just not know how to put his head underwater? Um, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make fun of him. I'm just confused by the scenario. Yeah, that doesn't really feel hard. No, no. I I think it was was more dramatic for the doctor to, you know, spit water out as he comes Mm -hmm. up from the water. And he didn't realize, oh, this is brackish water. I shouldn't be having it in my mouth at all. Side note about the book, and this is going to segue nicely into Danny reading the back cover for us. This is one of the stories that Pinnacle here in the United States released. And while it's said to be Americanized, I wasn't actually able to find any significant changes between the UK version and the US version. The next two Target books we will do will be the last two Pinnacle editions, just so you know. But for those of us living in America, those Pinnacle editions may have been what got us into the show. And speaking of which, Danny, you have your copy of the Pinnacle Edition, so I'm going to ask you as our special guest to do a dramatic reading of the back cover for us. Thank you so much. Yeah, these actually, the, the Pinnacle books were actually my entry point into really loving Doctor Who. Like after I saw some kind of random episodes, the station that had them on kind of took them off the air and then it was a mystery. Um, and then I found Day of the Daleks, which is also one of my favorite stories, which nobody, <laughs> nobody else liked because I read the book way before I saw it on TV. And in my version, Unit had a spaceship <laughs> yes. and Daleks had three arms. <laughs> it was much, much more exciting. And so I got all 10 of these books and I read them like a thousand times. So I'm happy to read. And this has a quote from Harlan Ellison on the front that says, incomparable, extraordinary, my hero, Doctor Who, because Harlan Ellison has like a 12 page introduction for each of these books. All right. But now I'll read the, now I'll read the thing. Doctor Who meets his clone. Doctor Who, that cocky, crazy cosmic hobo and his delightful companion, Sarah, land in the small English village of Devisham. The TARDIS has brought them safely home at last or has it? At first, the picturesque village seems deserted, but then they discover zombie-like inhabitants who won't answer their questions, and a mysterious soldier who marches over a cliff and reappears without a scratch. And then there are the weird coffin-like meteorites that open up and contain human-like creatures. Have the body snatchers returned? So that's it. Oh wait, I'm sorry, there's some more. What Doctor Who doesn't know is that the village is not English at all, nor is it on Earth. So there you go. Oh, I'm sorry. There's it continues. Uh, it's a replica on the polluted <laughs> planet of Sidon, the radiation infested home of the crawls. So I feel like that. Oh wait, sorry. Um, there's just a little more. The few surviving crawls must find a new home fast and are sending androids to Earth to take it over. Okay, here's the last part. Will Doctor Who be able to outsmart his own android clone in a face-to-face battle on like the second to last page, battle of wits, and stop the <laughs> android invasion of Earth? Well, that's very economical. There's no need to buy that yeah. version. Yeah. You've already yeah. got the whole thing. <laughs> There's actually two more paragraphs of more stuff. This is a really very busy back cover. 
It is insane, those pinnacle backgrounds. And it says Doctor Who is a mysterious, zany, and very mature time lord. So the thing, one thing that I really love about these pinnacle books is that I learned from them that Doctor Who's name is Doctor Who, as everyone knows. <laughs> well, duh. Duh. That is, how I, that is how I have always known him. And one of my happiest moments on the show is Missy coming out of the TARDIS in World Enough in Time and saying, Hello, I'm Doctor Who. I am that mysterious adventurer in all of time and space known only as Doctor Who. And these are my disposables, exposition and comic relief. We're not functions. Darling, those are genders. So why do you keep calling yourself Doctor Who? Because I'm pretending to be him. Because that's the whole point of this ridiculous exercise. Yeah, but he's called the Doctor, so. He says, I'm the Doctor, and they say, Doctor Who. See, I'm cutting to the chase, baby. I'm streamlining. I'm saving us actual minutes. Yeah, okay, whatever. Also, it's his real name. It's what? And I was like, yes! (laughs) I knew it! I knew that was his name. I love that. And his reaction to it, I'm not actually called that. Oh, yes, you are. Shut up. So, Missy and I, and Pinnacle Books, we know the truth. Yes, we do. Now, at this point, we usually ask about first impressions. Let me go with Danny first, because I'd like to know your first impression when you first got picked up this book. What were you thinking? I absolutely adored it. I kind of talked about this. Like I, I just, it's the clues got me all excited. I was really happy about Doctor Who being like Sherlock Holmes, who notices things like oh, it smells like rain, but there's dry earth here. Why are there mm-hmm. acorns? Like all this stuff. I just, I loved all the little clues and the fact that it fell apart. Uh, really never mattered to me. <laughs> Your cover is very different than the one that Dalton and Allison have. Could you show that to the camera? Oh, sure. Yes, it is the Doctor. There's, I guess, there's the planet Earth. And then behind it is another planet Earth. And then there's the fourth Doctor's face next to, I guess, a spaceman, like Android with a faceplate down next to Stigron, all kind of like facing in the same direction, like they're the Beatles. It's amazing. That's much more interesting than what we have. Yeah, what do you guys have? Yeah. Looks like the Doctor is about to be burned at the stake by spacemen. Uh (laughs) And there's an alien in front who's completely bored with the entire procedure. (laughs) It features the doctor tied up to that uh, post or whatever yeah. it is in the middle of the village. But it looks like the doctor's just lounging around while Stigron is in the foreground. And it's a bizarre image. But not an interesting bizarre <laughs> image. More like Mm-mm. they're, they're no. all finding it tedious. They're just hanging out. That's exactly what I was going to ask it's you. Nice. Well, your first impression was Allison. Oh, I think I've yes, that on the cover they seem quite bored and that the back of the book, I'm not sure if we have a true scan or just OCR here, but we did not have all of those clues. But when I actually started no. reading it, I, I enjoy most of the Terrence Dick's prologues and think they're usually the best part of his books. And I enjoy the prologue very much. And I liked the creepy village stuff a lot, even though mm-hmm. once we understand the situation, a lot of it didn't seem to make sense to me. Uh, like, yeah. like the level of detail and the level of omission, they did bother to create fake acorns and a quarry that you can fall off the edge of, but not a full mm-hmm. calendar. But before I knew what was going on, it actually was like great cre- creepiness, great atmosphere. Yes, and they learned how to make ginger beer for some reason. Which, good on them. Like, that's... <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> yeah. If you're going to destroy humanity, you may as well <laughs> pour a decent drink on your humanity's way out. Precisely. And Dalton, what was your first impression? Well, like Allison said, it looks like the doctor's about to be burned at the stake. And so <laughs> I was wondering what he said to this 
green Ferengi <laughs> to make him want to burn him <laughs> to at piss the him off so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then once I started reading it again, the bits with the the little fake town really drew me in and made me be like, yeah, what what is going on here? I did kind of pick up on the fact that they weren't on Earth a little early on before it's really revealed. But yeah, once you kind of get to the second half, I was a little less interested and less involved with what was going on this android invasion didn't really feel like something that was feasible <laughs> yeah we're such yeah. killjoys <laughs> it's unpragmatic <laughs> <laughs> i'm just we're we're told that there are very few crawls left at all and so okay why did you you're, make you're gonna kill all, make all of humanity and then like 10 of you are gonna inhabit earth yeah. <laughs> and yet you need all the resources for yourself uh, yeah. you know as as crawls well, they're, do they're clearly very wasteful because they built basically disneyland yeah. on their planet and then they just are like okay well that was just for practice and then they blow it up they wrote it's a small world one time yeah were really inspired which is one time too many i i, I like to like look at this story and imagine the like, accounting team for the crawls just like looking at the reports and just saying like what are you doing like why are you spending all of this money on dominoes and dartboards and acorns who's gonna pay for all these acorns you realize we drained the flex fund last fiscal year there's no way we can afford this that's why there were no animals they ruined all their budget yeah they couldn't afford birds well this is why i thought it was going to be a more interesting invasion scenario because if they have to train the androids to behave in a human way Mm -hmm. and to interact with a human environment i thought it was going to be well going back to you know the soviet scenario long-term sleeper agents yeah of some kind But if I understand correctly, and there's an excellent chance I do not understand correctly, the and human androids were just going to spread the virus. They and that was going nothing. to spread very quickly. Yeah. And was that yeah. their only task? Yeah, essentially. But they were all going to I land think. in the same village. Yes. And yeah. spread out from there instead of... It is landing. not a good okay, plan. I, uh, on an island nation. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a virus that can kill the creatures that want to replace humanity. And appear to kill them instantly. So why they had to learn how to play darts, I have no idea. <laughs> like, how well, stealthy. If it was like some kind of injection, I would get it. Like yeah. you lure humans into darts uh, competition. <laughs> and then you just turn sideways at the last minute. And, Without your mask on. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the dosing. But, uh, You're putting me in a bad position because I'm having to defend this. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead, Danny, and I'll tell you why I think they did it this way. Oh, just the, the stupidity of this goes on and on. If you want people to blend in with the Earth inhabitants, why make doubles of people who currently exist? Mm. Like, you have, you know, you could have just somebody who looks like a soldier rather than somebody who looks like specifically Sergeant Benton, who then is can get exposed and, and why are there two of these people and whatever. And so how are they planning on, like, bringing all these people into the town? Well, that's why I thought it was going to be a more interesting yeah. replacement plan. They're going to replace all these military figures and somehow mm. overthrow the government that way, take control of the weapon systems. No, they're just going to play darts. They just don't know. They they just do not know. <laughs> and they get to play darts with the humans without killing them all. Well, I, but I guess the automatons are not the crows. They're just tools. Right. Well, yeah. that, that's one way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's here's where I'm having to defend this, and I can't believe I'm... Do it. Well, I seriously think I'm Love. not getting it. I'm not just being sarcastic. I felt there was well, something... Well, what I think, what I think is happening, 
what I think is happening is that the crawls are deciding that they are going to have Crayford, who's just the biggest tool of them all, land at the base, which is overseen by a unit. They take over the unit soldiers. The unit soldiers then take the virus off to their various different postings because they are an international mm. organization. But that doesn't work either because no. they only have the replicants or whatever the how they're called that Crayford was tortured to make for them. That and all okay, the so beer. all the unit personnel go into town, go to the pub, play darts... With have ginger ale. It's the teetotaler pub, I guess. Uh, have <laughs> ginger ale, uh, no, they drink contract whiskey. the they virus and take it home? Yeah. Oh, that's right. There's whiskey. Okay. I don't know if they can drink it, but there's whiskey. So instead of giving unit personnel the virus directly, they well, no, they do give a couple of them. They do replace a couple of them with virus-bearing androids, but the plan involves... Yeah. Everyone has to go on leave in the village and contract it there and then go to their home country. It's not the worst idea. A very small village village near a base. That's the only place to go for any kind of recreation or relaxation. It's not. Yeah. I can see a bureaucrat coming up with that. The thing that I think is great about this story is that it is not far-fetched it absolutely could happen it's just that the crawls are the stupidest creatures who have ever lived like as long as you say that everything's totally fine it completely makes sense they're just the worst possible invaders but they're very good at engineering is, is what they makes are. it frustrating I know they're really- and set dressing they're amazing yeah yes now the reason why that virus is there is specifically because of Terry Nation's interest in plague. Yeah. Because he used the plague as the first volley of the Daleks invasion of Earth way back in 1964. And he was also, oh, and I, I wish I had checked the dates. It was either the same year or the year after that that he did a series for BBC called Survivors, which is specifically about a horrifying pandemic originating in China that wipes out the in, almost the entire human population. So I think he was trying to marry the two ideas. Now, if he kept the virus out of it, we probably wouldn't even be thinking, oh, this is a terrible plan, because it could actually kind of work a bit, I guess. There's no? nothing to it. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> oh, God. While we're ragging on this story, let's talk about the other things we didn't like about the book, if there were any things that we didn't like about the book. I have my least favorite line. Yes, please. Uh, there's just parentheses on, for me, it's page 57. It's kind of like in the middle of talking, Chidaki and Stigron are like having a conversation. And then there's little parentheses that say, this ferocious temperament was the cause of the many savage atomic wars, which had devastated their planet and reduced the crawl race to a mere handful, totally dependent on the androids. And it's like mm-hmm. stuck right in the middle of that. I'm like, we don't need to know this right now. This is chapter yeah. six. You yeah. need to slow your roll on the exposition. Well, <laughs> I don't think we even a... at that point we don't even really know what the what the relationship is between the crawl race and the androids, and he just kind of like plops that right in. Not a fan. Well, of that but line. he always has the the self awareness to use parentheses because this happens like <laughs> two or three times. Yeah. Yes. Like there's a complete mm-hmm. ethnography in parentheses here, and then two or three other places. So. Is this in the episode? His his explanation of like, and so here's the structure of unit. 
Yeah, and why are the mm-hmm. androids cruel? Yeah. Oh, well, because they are <laughs> moderating themselves on the cruel. So is this in the episode or is this? Nope. You mean, like, this... a, you mean like a narrator coming up? Like a, an, well, is uh, there like anything a about... <laughs> like Ron, Ron Howard <laughs> like is there? popping up from the bottom of the frame? <laughs> well, you see, they're quite cruel. It, it, it was very weird to me that it was in parentheses. Not that it was added, but that it was mm-hmm. like somehow... Uh, quarantine from the rest <laughs> of the page. Yeah. Like someone knew Which it that it kind of has necessary. to be because of the virus. Here's the thing, though. When Taron Sticks uses parentheses, as we've noted on the show before, he usually does it for stage directions. Mm. And that's because he's used to being, you know, script editor. So if there's a camera shot, it's like, in the corner, this eye came out of the wall and looked at the wall. Mm. And it's like, okay, they're not supposed to see that, but we are. It is weird for him to put his exposition in there. And I think, I can't believe I'm defending this again. God damn it. Uh, I think it's because Allison pointed out that Terrence Six likes his prologues. Mm. He can't do one for this book. Because if he does, he'll give what little of the game there is to give away, away. He can't give us a prologue saying the crawls have killed each other for millennia. No, he can't do that. So he's got to put them in. So uh, imagine what a slap in the face that pyramid book was when the entire story, when he's practiced restraint (laughs) in the prologue and the entire story is on the back of the book. Yeah. But, it, but he still yeah. does it in the style of one of his prologues. It's just the beginning of what we see on screen instead of something that he's added mm-hmm. towards the end. There's still a very atmospheric scene where someone dies, we think. Mm-hmm. Not quite. Yeah. yeah. But what annoys me about both the story and the book, there's no real way to make that tension have any merit as long as you have a story that's titled The <laughs> Android Invasion. Because you know there's going to be an invasion, it's going to be by some androids, and if people are acting weird, they're probably androids. But I did not, uh, I was not as sharp as Dalton, and I did not realize they were not on Earth until it was stated outright. Oh good, so that works. I, yes, I was slow on the uptake. <laughs> So I thought that the androids were going to leave the village and be deployed mm. to, to duplicate oh. other people or, you know, to to imitate other people or there would be other androids that would replace world leaders, that sort of thing. I thought they would go out from oh. the village, not to a different planet. Now, let me ask, Allison, did you think that the race car drivers in the woods were the actual androids and not the people in the village? No, I thought it was obvious from the beginning that the people in the village were androids. Ah, okay. And that the race car drivers were just security of some kind. Uh, by the way, I love that line of uh, Sarah's thinking, what are four race car drivers doing out in the middle of the woods? It's like, I don't, I don't want to touch that one. Oh, my. Is there a camera crew with them? No, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you should be able to hear the boom chicka wow music through the woods. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant they were interviewing them, yes. Oh, <laughs> goodness. The upcoming season. Uh, ha- have we met, Allison? You know who I am. <laughs> You think they're out at the magic hedge in Montrose. So, Danny, I have a question. Uh, How old were you when you read your first Doctor Who novel? I must have been like 10 or 11. So I've got a a question because Dalton and I have a a bit of a a theory about what our perception of history might have been like if we started reading these younger. Mm -hmm. Did you get the idea that the Marie Celeste was one of the central events of history? (laughs) I definitely, I did. Because this is yeah. like number five, novel number five. Oh it's been Where they keep mentioned. mentioning it. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. Did, I did know a lot about the Marie Celeste, yeah. Did, was it? Did you know the doctor was responsible for it? <laughs> I think I, I, uh, 
I was told that that's also like not just in the books, but in the spinoff nonfiction stuff that they did. It also mentions that that he's responsible for the fire in Rome and the, the Marie Celeste. Yes, yes. I, yes. I thought it was I'm trying to remember who was it who accidentally like basically lit one of his farts in the sewers of Rome <laughs> to create the fire. <laughs> oh, that was, was a Donald the, uh, Cotton guy one. that's named after. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, yes. The guy that was named after a worm. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Or maybe it was Trey. I'm sorry. Dalton, was it you or Trey? who said was a Trey who read them when he was younger and yes. waited for yeah. expected that one day in school there will be a day when they'd learn about the Marie Celeste and it never came. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the crazy thing is that also is a Terry Nation script. So he seems to just like referencing things that he forgets that he's written about, which is <laughs> about par for the course, come to think of it. What was it? Is it something in British culture that's like the lost colony here that's like something people know about, but... It just comes I, up in casual conversations and jokes? I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, it, was, yeah, it's like, it was an, old, it was like, an like, old mystery, yeah. Yeah, it's like a mystery of history that is something people are aware of, but isn't really a... A big deal, but you know, if you're British, you know about the Marie Celeste. I was waiting for a third word that rhymed with history there, but it never came. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I remember as a kid hearing about it, but it was through Doctor Who books. It was Mm -hmm. not actually through anything in American culture at all. We tend not to think about it as much as they do, apparently. What else do we not like about the book specifically, if anything? (laughs) He said knowingly. The things that I wasn't crazy about all had to do with the resolution of the plot, which wasn't terrible, just anticlimactic. Mm. I'm still new to Tom Baker, Doctor, in a lot of ways. Is it normal for him to hurl cosmetic insults at the alien species? No, it isn't. Yeah. That isn't on screen. I'm glad you brought that up. He, he he does it a lot, and I thought it was more of a psychological tactic to distract them, perhaps, or maybe this doctor is just a jerk, kind of verbally cruel. I don't know. It, yeah, it seemed a little off to me. He does call Stigrun like pig face at one yeah. point, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, he doesn't do that on screen, as far as I recall. So no, that's that is unusual. That's Terrence Dix, possibly working with that early draft script because there are lots of little changes like that whole thing of the androids being mirror copies of the people that they are copies of yeah. which comes up exactly once and then mm-hmm. never again it's just uh, why <laughs> why is it there there's the bit about the matter disperser mm-hmm that I thought was going to be a huge plot point. Somehow that was going to be how they were going to deal with the androids. Ah, but no. No. <laughs> it, it Really, the only kind of callback is the, the bomb that they use to destroy mm-hmm. their fantasy land. Part of their fantasy land. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. once again, they're they're good at engineering. They're good at set dressing. They're not good at planning. They're just not it's logical. It's like they're missing a team member. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he had to call in sick, so <laughs> not only do they bring that up, they also bring up this weird kind of little I won't even call it a subplot. It's bare it's like a subplot point about the crawls being scared of their own androids and how they need to have some way to do away with them, which is why they have oh, the matter yeah. disperser. Yeah. Which is why they have Crayford go through that mess of generating another android and then they destroy it it's like see we can destroy them it's like okay yeah how do you not how's that not already part of your world you're about to do this invasion like in hours and you're just now thinking about this that's planning i like (laughs) that the doctor's initial explanations are terrible (laughs) 
Like there's a war. In what way? Radiation sickness that doesn't affect us. There may have been some kind of emergency, a sudden leakage. And, you know, anti-contamination. The money's all new because it changes hands a lot, so they had to bring in new money. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Are you just making this up? Yeah, he's just trying. (laughs) And we're walking around in it. Is he on screen? Is he being funny or is he being an idiot? No, he's being serious. He's being absolutely serious because he doesn't know what's happening either. I have a further question for the Krulls. How do they know all of these things? I think this is still... They, the Krulls have to stand and give account to you. Well, they... they um, yeah. There's a couple of places in the book where they pull some stuff out of Crayford and they have to scan Sarah, I guess, and they scan the doctor. But they didn't kidnap, like, all of those people that live in no. the village. Oh. How do they know all the people from the village and what they wear and what they do and et cetera? How do they know what the place looks like how do they know the money and the dominoes and all of that stuff like someone a crawl must have gone to earth right maybe we're just seeing the smallness of crayford's social life before he was lost in space <laughs> like did they did they get all that he does just is all hang out on him? the base yeah and then go to the pub and walk through town and he knows where the post office is and that's like his whole world maybe well, that doesn't explain one big problem, and this is going off Danny's point, which is Crayford's been away from Earth for, what, three years? Two years. Two years. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Faraday is su- supposedly there because I guess Faraday was there when he called them to get in touch with them, but does that mean there's a brigadier android somewhere around there because he normally would be there and was there three years ago? Why would Harry Sullivan have been there three years yeah. ago? None of that makes any damn sense. What about anybody that's moved in and out of the town in those two years? <laughs> uh-huh. There's going to be an android for someone that just doesn't exist there anymore. He moved <laughs> yes. to London. What are you What are you doing in Devisham? <laughs> the re-entry sequence was rendered in such loving detail that I expected something more to come of it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That just does not happen. <laughs> but all that said, like one thing that I really I I like and I haven't read a Target. You guys have been reading Target novelizations nonstop for a while, but this is the first one I've read in a long time, and I'm really impressed with his prose, with Terrence Dix's prose. That oh, yes. there are I wrote this down when the meteorites are landing. It says like a flock of strange birds, the space shells hiss down over Devisham Woods which I think is is Mm. wonderful. And all around him was the whistle and thump of the descending space shells. Like he takes, like he takes these things that are basically pretty stupid and, (laughs) but he uses this like very simple and direct language to describe it. That makes that moment work like a flock of strange birds, the space shells hiss down over different woods. And now that's just like a thing that's happening that you accept. I I really do. Mm -hmm. I do love that. And I would call this sort of medium quality dicks. Yeah. Relative to what we've read, much better, and we've yes. also had much more sticks. But, wow, that landed really flat. They're better dicks. They're worse sticks. Yeah, yeah. This is this is kind of medium range for dicks. So, but it's still impressive prose because it's only it's only later that he's decided. Okay, I'm doing this just for the oh money. yeah, I'm just typing. We're yeah. going to crank these out exactly <laughs> even when he's just typing his typing is better than some people's mm-hmm. labor of love over decades and decades the, the contempt that drips from your <laughs> voice about labor to love <laughs> well i do have an mfa in creative writing so i know the type what is this but a secondhand emotion manuscript yeah exactly <laughs> 
what else do we want to say negatively about? Why we got Sidney Sinek? <laughs> I know. Can we right? get into? Are we? Is, what's the next part of this? Uh, let's see. What we usually do is then talk about the positives, and I can also along the way, and Danny, you can help me with this, point out the things that are different between. In fact, let's talk about the differences between the uh, televised version and the book version because there there are a few, including the ginger beer. <laughs> ginger ale in my in my version. The ginger oh the ginger ale yes, which actually oh. confused me because they were pouring an awful lot of soft drinks for a pub, <laughs> yes. and I was wondering if it they was supposed to be indeed. ginger beer or, like I said, it was a teetotaler bar. It's called both in the British version of the book, and it's called both in the on-screen version. The pinnacle obviously is going to say it's ginger ale. Yeah, because that's what we would know it as. But it's called Ginger Pop and Ginger Beer on screen. Now, <laughs> the reason why that's there is because <laughs> it ends up being a plot point. Um, Sarah doesn't like Ginger Beer. Yes. The doctor, when he comes out of the TARDIS, offers it to her. She says, can't stand the stuff, thanks. When he meets her android double later, and this is another big thing. Uh, <laughs> among all the other suspicious things that she does... He offers her a ginger pop to, you know, let her whistle or whatever, and she drinks it down and she says it's delicious. And you see him give her a look at that mm -hmm. point. I think we have her drink it and enjoy it in the book, but I don't think we've had the comment before that she doesn't like it. You have not. You have yeah, not. Yeah, so it's not the, it's yeah. a big clue. Yeah. And uh, on screen, it's supposed to be the scarf here. It's the jacket, which leads to another big problem I have, which is... If you're doing these doubles from someone you have in custody, why would you give them a jacket that they obviously are not wearing? <laughs> Unless they are really so attached to that jacket that they self-visualize wearing that jacket. <laughs> it, yeah, it's just strange, really. All right, let's get on to the good stuff, because you're right. There are some really good things in this book, surprisingly. So, what did we like about it? Well, in the same way that a lot of things are filmed in Toronto, but it's not often the setting for a story, proportionately. Uh, Tony, you've told us that a lot of these episodes are filmed in rock quarries. <laughs> yes. But rarely do they make an appearance in the story. <laughs> so like, oh, they're actually <laughs> acknowledging it's Toronto. Oh, they're actually acknowledging <laughs> that someone's plunging into a rock quarry. I don't know. That yes. actually, that, that, that pleased me. <laughs> oh, well... We will get a story coming Before up. Before he finally gets a, a screen credit. Yes. It really, well, it kind of does. In it pays way. And I, I think in that story, the reason why the Doctor and Sarah don't realize they're in a quarry is because they've been to so many planets that look like quarries. Is it always the same quarry that they film in, or is it different ones? No, no. Though the same quarry has stood in as an alien planet a couple of times. I'd, I'd have to look that up, to be honest. Somebody even more <laughs> ravenously nerdy than me has looked all these things up and cross-referenced them, and I'm sure somebody will tell us. But yeah, yeah, they, they have to reuse a few because there are only so many quarries. Good stuff. What good stuff do we have? <laughs> uh, I'll give you my favorite line. Yes, please. Uh, which is, like the spider at the center of its web, Stigron crouched over an instrument console in the secret Kral control room below the Space Research Center. And I just feel like, is there Ooh. any phrase more thrilling than the secret Kral control room? It's, it's just gorgeous. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I just love this story, like, just as it kind of unfolds and falls apart. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It just, it's, <laughs> like, the whole point of the story is 
to serve you unsettling imagery. Mm-hmm. Things being empty that shouldn't be, people who shoot with, with your fingers. A guy dives off a cliff and then you see him walking around. Life and death and animate and inanimate and normal and bizarre all kind of bumped up against each other um, in a way that mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. I think, fascinating and bizarre. And kind of, and those are the kinds of feelings that, that you're supposed to have. Like when you watch Doctor Who, I think there's um, there's another line that says it's talking about the um, the bar, and it says everything was utterly shatteringly normal, hmm. which is <laughs> yeah. like they see they you know, yeah. looking at the bar, and then all of a sudden it comes to life and it's shatteringly normal. It's just a weird ass story. I mean, it, you know, Doctor Who is always reaching out for something that is just beyond its grasp. It's Dark Shadows is the same. They're always trying to hmm. trying to hit just outside of what they can actually do successfully with the budget. Yeah. And that, and <laughs> actually like it's so dark shadows actually used, they were one of the first television shows in the United States that used green screen a lot or like mm-hmm. chroma key or they call it on, in England. It's a color separation overlay. CSO. Yeah. Yeah. At basically the same time that Dr. Who fell in love with CSO, the show ended dark shadows ended in like 1971, which is the beginning of the Pertwee era. And so both shows were really like looking at, the very new technology and saying, what could we possibly do with this? And then they try way too hard. Um, but I think, you know, I think what that does is it makes when it's successful, it's beautiful and, and unlike anything else that's on TV. And when it's not successful, it is also unlike anything that you could see on TV, but in a bad way. Mm-hmm. But, that, but that means that like that bad doctor who still looks more interesting yes. than most other things in life. And I think mm-hmm. that's what yeah. like, that's kind of the goal of the show. And I think this story kind of achieves that. Well, and the unsettling elements seem to be what I imagine to be the lowest budget elements. Like uh, right, we coins. have this phrase here about lying inside, looking uncannily like a laid out corpse was a woman in her fifties. She was neatly and plainly dressed in a simple, in a simple tweed suit and looked exactly like the kind of middle-aged lady you'd see shopping in any main street. So what was she doing in the middle of a wood lying inside a right. meteorite? Yes. That was a kind of, it's, it's not a special effect to have a 50-something woman thing, in a yeah. tweed suit. It's not a special effect to have a rock in the forest. It is a nicely unsettling image to put them together right, like but, that. Uh, here's another yeah. thing, though. Why is she lying out there in the middle of the forest when the androids <laughs> are supposed to be underneath the, uh, in that, you know, spider's web underneath the... Well, so many of the stories that Terrence Dix adapts, I don't know if he's just deemed good at adapting these stories or he's just keeps drawing the short straw actually he draws most of the straws of any length Uh, he he adapts so many but they build up a really interesting atmosphere and premise and then it resolves with people running down tunnels and then somebody throws a stick of dynamite or throws out a circuit and we're done Mm -hmm. so it's only disappointing because we were interested and engaged in it and then it sort of fizzled and popped into nothing at the end Quite literally. Yes, actually. I've been sitting here staring at the description of Stigron's uh, head <laughs> dissolving um, like a ball of wax. <laughs> yeah, because Danny was talking about just crazy imagery. And mm. that that is something that, like, yeah, it just stands out to me as being like, <laughs> God. <laughs> how insane. Mm. How do they do that on screen? What does it look like? Because I'm sure it's not it doesn't anything no. like no, what it is in my head. All. Yeah, but that and that's why like, for kids who grew up reading the books when it wasn't possible to watch a lot of the show. So that was definitely me like reading these and reading the Target books. Yeah, that looks amazing in your head. 
And in yeah. the way that like Day of the Daleks is like, oh, there's, you know, a, a fleet of Daleks coming at you. And on the show, it's just like, three clunky old Dalek <laughs> models that are like, bumping across the lawn. It looks terrible. If I recall correctly, in Android Invasion, it's just they take the it's like a mask deflating. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's not very impressive. Um, it's very yeah. disappointing. Yeah. <sighs> Could still be creepy as a kid, but in yeah, the book, definitely. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's one of the weird things, and we've said this before about the novelizations, that they make it easier to reveal the, the weaknesses of the story, but also they tend to hide the weaknesses of the televised story. And it's this weird yeah. little kind of symbiosis going on if you read them and then watch them and you realize, oh, that was, that was shit. But it's good here. Well, the one, the one yeah. with Atlantis inside of, of the oh volcano, god, the underwater menace. One that yes. I visualized as quite dazzling, and then you oh, were just yeah. irate <laughs> that I would find it interesting. Like, have you seen this? No, no, I haven't. In my head, the production values oh. are very high. It's just a, then, it's just a bunch of like old white guys in skirts <laughs> yes. running around. That's exactly oh, it. Atlantis is coming apart. And a lot of extras on Kirby wires and st- I love that show. stuck on fish scales and felt fish eyes. That one's yeah, yeah, it's horrifying. And again, you've got a writer like Nigel Robinson in that case who is doing his damnedest to make a lovely silk purse out of a sow's ear that's been dipped in shit as well. It's <laughs> horrifyingly bad. It's like the Look, the sow's gotta keep cool enough hot climate exactly but you usually wash the ear off before you start sewing <laughs> it's hard to do with sort of elitist <laughs> i am i know i am now here's a strange thing usually dicks will improve one or two things on the script especially when it comes to terry nation where he kind of has to in this case the televised the, uh, there isn't a lot no but the televised version actually is better in some ways because robert holmes is script editing it and a lot of the best lines from the story are not in the novelization, such as uh, when when the doctor is in the disorientation center and he's having his brain drain going on. It's not there. He tells the story about the three sisters living at the bottom of the treacle well. Their names are Olga, Masha, and Irena. Are you listening to me? I'm Sarah. Sarah! I feel disorientated. This is the disorientation center. That makes sense. Yeah, it is hilarious. It's a witty exchange, and it's a sort of wit that Terry Nation kind of grasps for mm-hmm. every once in a while and can't get, whereas Robert Holmes is just effortless at it when it comes along. So we don't get that. I think there's another big thing that isn't in the book, but there are some lovely bits here. We lose Tom Baker's line, is that finger loaded? Mm. <laughs> Which I adore, but... Other things we liked. I like Sarah running off to save Harry. Mm. Yes. After he hasn't been with the doctor and Sarah in the past couple of uh, stories, she still has this kind of camaraderie with him and she wants to make sure he's okay. Mm-hmm. And so even though the doctor's like, no, don't do that. She's like, nah, I'm going to. <laughs> yes. Oh, she gets a lot to do. Which is cool. There's like, there's several times where she's left on her own or she runs out on her own, which is cool. I love Sarah so much. And her interplay with the Doctor in this book is lovely. I mean, we're in that golden stage between the Doctor and Sarah where they've just got this witty repartee going on. We've just had Pyramids of Mars where they're just sparkling together Mm. on screen. And here, they're the brightest and shiniest things on the screen because the rest is just awful. (laughs) 
Like these containers will be shot through those cargo shuttle ejectors like seeds from a lemon, and we'll be in them. <laughs> oh, will we? Why? <laughs> yeah, there's a very nice moment in here of pattern and interplay. Um, after uh, the recurring motif we've had on, I think, three different occasions of uh, someone slapping one of the female companions to calm her mm. down or bring her back to consciousness or something like that, and I've actually questioned whether or not this was a really widely practiced first aid technique in the 60s and 70s. It's actually kind of fun to see a female companion slap a doctor. I'm not normally in oh. favor of violence, but in context, it was amusing. Yeah, that used to be oh. that used to be a thing. Yeah, yeah, we've had three lady companion face slaps. You say, I think you say you say you're being you're being hysterical and you slap yes. them and then yes, or yes. you're losing consciousness slap, yeah. which is where I actually questioned if that was you know medically yeah. sound. No, it turns it turns out it turns out that men's hands are medicine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Wake up with oh, severed hands taken for medicinal purposes. <laughs> but yes, but in that context, he opened his eyes and looked reproachfully at her. Ouch, that hurt. <laughs> yes. And the closest she ever gets to hysteria is Dick's telling us that she thinks of the uh, androids that are firing after them. Maybe they've got short range fingers. Yes. <laughs> she thought hysterically. And that's brilliant. Uh, we don't have Sarah fainting for once, mm. which is lovely yeah. because she has been fainting every frequently, frequently. blood pressure problem she, yes <laughs> she doesn't scream in the book at all which is also lovely and yeah their interplay is just great it's the only part of this that's really quite great well it's a nice little note at the end of having the doctor do the evasive trick where he leaves his clothes as a distraction on the la on land and goes under and apparently swallows a lot of water mm. um breathing through the reed it, it's it's kind of a fun thing yeah, that and then he has dry clothes waiting for him when he gets back so there's some nice <laughs> clever moments like that where which is why it's so strange that the plot itself doesn't make any sense because there's so much clever in the little chases and exchanges yeah yeah there's also a very creepy sequence on screen where sarah comes out of her uh, pod i guess you'd call it mm. when they get to earth and she thinks she's found the real doctor, and she hasn't. She's run into the android doctor and her doppelganger. And it is terrifying, because Tom Baker and Liz Sladen can actually play villains very well. But we don't get it in the book, and that's mm. really kind of a shame. But we do get Tom Baker's line of... Now, if you do see me again today, I want you to report it to me immediately. <laughs> <laughs> okay, other things we liked... There's the bit with the doctor searching for his identification when he gets <laughs> when he gets to the the space center. It just reminds me of a newer doctor with the psychic paper. Mm. It's like wouldn't be an issue now, but <laughs> yeah, back back then he's having to search through his pockets, and luckily he still has it. But mm -hmm. he hasn't given it to Sarah to hold for him, or like he used to do with Joe, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I like the robot detector, the little yes. handheld. It yes. just makes no sense. All of a sudden, here it is, almost the end of the story. We've been <laughs> hanging out with androids this whole time. And all of a sudden, he just like reaches into his pocket and he's like, oh, yeah, this is a robot detector. It lights up when you point it at a robot. And then like points it at, who is it? Like He points it at Harry or something, and it lights up. And then he says to the captain, like, you see here? And then he points it at the captain, and it lights up again. 
Well, it's just a taser, and so, like, yeah. you know, if, <laughs> if the person seems okay, they're a robot. If they start screaming and writhing, oh, no, yeah. sorry, Harry. Yeah. And it's, like, it's this thing that he carries in his pocket, obviously, at all times. It's like a multi-tool. Yeah, yeah. that... Um, like a Gerber or something. It just, it just exists for the purpose of this one little moment where I'm supposed to slowly realize that the two people I'm talking to are both androids. And so it's just, yeah. it's so stupid, and I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want a little robot detector like that. that I, I would definitely look for reasons to use it, like hunt for occasions. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about that ending, because we've talked on the podcast about abrupt endings before. This one yeah. is even more abrupt in the book than it is on screen, which is hard to credit, but it's true. We don't get a scene of the Doctor and Sarah going back into the TARDIS on their own, which means, as far as the book goes, Harry could have gone with them, which is why the next book mm. we read has Harry in it, and that's why I think it's canon, so there we go. But what do we think <laughs> of that abrupt ending? It just stops. Yeah. It's a <laughs> book in the Yeah, the android half. invasion was over. It was over. Mm. Literally. At the end, goodbye. Yeah. They have to announce it so that you don't think, oh, there's some kind of problem copy editing. They accidentally didn't insert the final half page. Yes. Right. Is there an epilogue that I didn't get? It's weirdly paced because it, 88 pages for the PDF you sent us, it's by far the shortest thing we've read in many, many books. Mm. Like yeah, one of the two or three shorts we've read ever. And the second half goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> So I thought the first half had you know, great little clever moments and atmosphere, but like I said, that weirdly extended two or three page re-entry sequence announcing altitude, I kept expecting oh, this yeah. to go completely no, off the rails. And Now they have a nice safe landing and don't forget the champagne. Yes, you've mentioned mm -hmm. it three times before. And then it ends so abruptly at the end that it was almost like, uh, I don't know, like pulling the elastic was worn out or something. Some places mm. are too stretched out <laughs> and, and then you try to fix that by snipping it off at the end. Yeah. Not terrible, just kind of odd and offbeat relative to the first half of the book. Like he was on deadline. I'm wondering again if that's a draft script problem. I'm wondering if that's how the televised story ends, because that's where we see Harry last. He's tied up on the floor of the, the <laughs> rocket, and he doesn't even get a last line. The Doctor and Sarah just vamoose to the TARDIS, and I suspect Robert Holmes wrote that. Yeah. Yeah, because he's <laughs> home. He's home and he's at his posting, so why would he go with them? But we're going to forget that because the next book he is with them. So yeah. Wait, what's the which is the next book? What is Scratchman. Oh yes he is. Yeah. The next one we're doing. Yes. The next one we're doing. And the reason right. why he's there, of course, is because Ian Martyr happened to co write that one and it was supposed to be the movie and uh, yeah, yeah. Well we'll we'll get into that obviously, but on screen they leave without him, which is just sad because Benton doesn't get a good send off. Yeah. Harry doesn't get a good send off, and that's just awful. And this is a show that is well known for not sending off companions too well. We had yeah. Dodo just Ash. do a by text message. Yeah, how do one date anymore? <laughs> I feel like Mike Yates weirdly got the most loving send-off of all the recurring characters. He got like weirdly two of them. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, two separate ones. Harry comes back. Have you, have you, uh, to your yes. friends that there is a, Target is a, a spin-off book called Harry Sullivan's War. 
Indeed. That's going to come up because I I know exactly where it comes in story order, but it's not until the fifth doctor has started. Mm. But yeah, Ian Martyr is going to write a book and it is pretty well regarded. I mean, we've read Ian Martyr on this uh, show before and we will read him again because he wrote some later novelizations and we like his stuff. I have not read Harry Sullivan's War. That was one. I skipped that. I skipped the um, Turlo and the Earthlink Dilemma. I skipped, yeah, I skipped all which that. Which is not about trying to connect to your ISP, believe no. it or not, despite the name. <laughs> but yeah, but we will be doing those. Absolutely. So lucky. So, yeah, exactly. So looking forward to that. Uh, last thoughts on this one. I like the doctor's title for himself, uh, Acting Unpaid Scientific Advisor. <laughs> yes. Yes. Literally true. Yeah, the Brigadier got some value for his money there. Ah, well, shall we go to Goodreads? Do it, yeah. I think so. Let's go to Goodreads, as we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is... 3.42, which is surprisingly high. Yeah. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, guys, but keep them coming. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it three stars and says, Another nearly original story from Terry Nation. (laughs) At least one he hasn't written before for Doctor Who. It was very reminiscent of The Avengers, John Steed, not Captain America, for which he'd written several episodes, and I can't help wondering if he used any ideas he'd had for that show. Episode 4 even has Patrick Newell, who played Mother in The Avengers. He is uh, Faraday. Another influence was, of course, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but that was likely at the behest of producer Philip Hinchcliffe. There are two gaping plot holes on screen, one of which Dix fixes. Boy, that's hard to say. The resurrection of the android doctor doesn't make sense on screen because the scene explaining it was edited out for timing. Dix repairs this with a line about the real doctor shielding and reprogramming the android. Oh, that's right. Mm. The other plot hole concerns, and we didn't talk about this, Guy Crawford's hygiene regimen. Does he ever wash? (laughs) If he does, does he carefully wash around the eye patch? And if he washes his hair, how's the elastic on that eye patch not perished? There's also a who joke, though it's not nearly as blatant as it could have been. The line, nobody knows who's who around here, might have been an innocent coincidence, though it was a nation script. And he probably still thought the character's name was Doctor Who, so who knows? Which it (laughs) is. Sorry. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There are many changes from the script to the page, but the book does feel more like Doctor Who than the Avengers, which for me is an improvement. Daniel Kukwa gives it four stars and says another Terrence Dix rescue mission. On television, the android invasion is one of the few shaggy dog stories in the otherwise peerless gothic early Fourth Doctor era. In prose, Mr. Dix sews up the logic holes, strips the fat from the story, and gives it a proper conclusion. The end result is miles better than the original source material. And finally... Michael Sigler gives it a whopping five stars and says simply, classic who better than new who hands down. And the better than is the actual better than mathematical symbol, (laughs) which is just hilarious. All right. So we're going to rank this one 
out of five stars, and I'm going to do it Dalton, Allison, and then Danny, and then me. Dalton, out of five stars, what did you give this one? I would go with a solid three for this one. Terrence Dick's writing isn't the best that we've seen from him, but it sparkles in places. It does give you some eerie bits, um, some good descriptions to hang on to. The story itself feels a little lacking for me, but like I talked about earlier at the beginning with uh, the Disney World town, whatever we want to call it, it felt more intriguing to me than the second half once we did start to get into the actual invasion plot. So, yeah, three for me. Okay, Allison? I'm going to go, like, eh, two. Okay. I don't feel strongly about it one way or the other. I, I'll take that back. I really, I, I, I did enjoy the beginning of it as a fun ride. I mean, the, the context that we're not talking about, I don't know if everyone else spent their week, but I, I cannot even imagine the number of hours I spent doom scrolling mm-hmm. uh, since yes. Wednesday morning. Yeah. And so it, I often feel like, oh, God, I gotta, gotta go read my Doctor Who novel, gotta go do my homework. And then I'm, I'm glad that, <laughs> well, no, seriously, then, then I'm always glad that I did. Like, yes, it was good to take my mind off of more serious things and read a fun adventure novel. Uh, and I went back and forth a lot more than usual in this. And I think that kind of affected my read of it. It was actually nice to read something light and clever. But I always bring whatever is going on in the world into the novel with cheap analogies. And so the idea of a village that's not what it seemed seemed especially poignant for this reading. Mm. But then, like I said, there wasn't much payoff at the end of the story. So, yeah, I'll go too. But just uh, you know, remember, I'm kind of a jerk about numbers. that's fine and danny out of five stars what would you give this i'll give it a four i think partly out of nostalgia partly because it was you know it was important to me when when i was a kid i really do love those like the first half basically up until sarah's face falls off (laughs) it's just so much fun to to think about the acorns and the and the coins and dominoes um and kind of puzzle over them and you know i think there's something to be said for like if a story is really really amazing and the last two minutes of it are a big letdown you still did have that experience you know in this of like that you had that first half experience of this is very intriguing and then you find out that it just kind of falls apart but for that i i am going to give it a four and for and just some really nice clear terrence dicks descriptions that kind of distract you from how silly some of it is okay and as for me, I'd, I'd have to give it a, I'm, I can't believe I'm doing this again. I'd have to give this a 2.75 because my scores tend to fall between Dalton's and Allison's quite often. And this time it's definitely going to be that, but I, I can't go quite as high as three this time, mainly because here's my problem. Whenever I look at these novelizations, I look at them, whether or not they are a good representation of the story on screen, whether they improve upon it, whether they don't improve upon it, and so on. Dix is working from too early of of a draft to really get the good bits of the story, all of them. So he's not getting what Robert Holmes added to it because he's going with Terry Nation's original script, apparently. He is not working with the tape because that wasn't common at the time. So he's going with an earlier draft of the script. And I really wish it had been a later one. I wish it had not had that silly mention of the mirrored androids. I wish it had had the Ginger Pop subplot because as stupid as that is, I kind of love it. Mm. And it doesn't have those wonderful flourishes that Robert Holmes puts in, like the disorientation center line, which is brilliant. Mm. So it it's not improved. 
in any way, and in some ways it's even a little bit diminished. We don't get that final scene. However, not having that final scene means we get to read Scratchman as our next book, and no one's going to question it because no one can. So yeah, (laughs) 2.75. Well, thank you, everyone. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we have another installment of Technically Target, in which we discuss Tom Baker's original novel based on his unfilmed script co-written with the late Ian Martyr, Scratchman. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces like a crazy person. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC and subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails, you email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in subject line so I don't ignore it. I would like to thank Danny Horn very much for joining us with this. Thank you for uh, having Danny, me. Danny, if you would give us the web address for your blog. Yeah, it's Dark Shadows Every Day. And the URL is darkshadowseveryday.com. Very easy to remember. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Cool. Hopefully we can have you again. I would love it. This has been great. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.